Hello everybody and welcome. This is the launch of a new challenge. We've enjoyed so much our recent lengthier explorations of unexpected historical subjects in which one topic runs over two podcasts. Such is the depth of our research that it raised the important questions of if we could do the opposite, if we could do a micro history, take an unexpected historic subject and try to demonstrate how it has a history in just 15 minutes. Yes, uh, and without just talking much faster, <laughs> uh, which would defeat the object, really. So, yes, we're going to give it a go. We will, of course, continue our full-length investigations of unexpected subjects, but we'll also, hopefully, be running these micro-histories alongside them. So think of them as little stingers of fascinating history that you never even suspected existed, and we both hope that you enjoy them. Welcome everybody to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we explain how everything has a history, like pigeons, losing things and curiosity. We will be following the links in our minds, explaining how these histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that graffiti is all about Viking travel or that puppets is all about totalitarian rule and the struggle for freedom. Mm, the man not sitting opposite me, we're recording this over Zoom, but he will help pilot us through these micro-histories. He's one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. And the man not sitting opposite me because we are in lockdown and ably helping me co-pilot these episodes is the famous historical adventurer Dr Sam Willis. So this is the first of our micro histories and it works like this. We embrace the task of demonstrating how an unexpected subject not only has a history, but is massively important and interesting in just 15 minutes. We start with a shared example and then have just five minutes each to make a case for an interesting history on that very unexpected subject. Contributions will be rigorously timed. And you, dear listeners, you will get to vote on social media on what you think was the most interesting fact that you heard today during the episode. Today's topic is the gruesome and gory history of cannibalism. So, James, where are we going to begin? Well, Sam, we were inspired to do this episode by our little book on the Tudors. So let's start there. And in particular with cannibals in literature. Now, cannibalism was a major theme in Tudor theatre, and Shakespeare is absolutely full of it. Take, for example, Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing, who says, Oh God, that I were a man, I would eat his heart in the marketplace. Or think of something like Othello, where the tragic general bewitches his wife Desdemona with tales of cannibals. Or the Roman general Coriolanus worries that the masses will eat him. And probably most famously of all in The Merchant of Venice, Shylock, the Jewish moneylender, and his desire for Antonio's pound of flesh when he defaults on a loan and is ridiculed as an unholy appetite. So Shakespeare and others knew very well that cannibalism worked effectively as a way of engaging the Tudor audience with contrasting themes of savagery versus civilization. And cannibalism as the savage end of extremes to which people might go 
was presented as a limit that should never be crossed. And this theme of cannibalism is explored possibly most fully by Michel de Montaigne in his essay of cannibals. And one of the most he's one of the most significant philosophers of the period. And his translation of his essays appeared in 1603 and undoubtedly it influenced Shakespeare in writing his play The Tempest which features themes, names and characters all of which can be traced back to Montaigne. Now addressing the willingness of those in the 16th century to reduce tribal peoples of the new world to cannibalistic barbarians, Montaigne uses this as a complex argument as a mirror to reflect on the savagery of Europeans themselves. And in his essay, he focuses on the behaviour of the Trapinamba people in northeastern Brazil. And he describes how they roast and eat their prisoners and send chops to their absent friends. Now, (laughs) Montaigne himself is inspired by several other uh, contemporary tracts on cannibalism, including true history, an account of cannibal activity in Brazil. Now, how about that, Sam? Very good. And actually, if you think about this part of the world, I think it's really interesting because the the historical evidence for cannibalism in the New World in this period particularly is varied and fascinating. And in fact, from the the very moment that the the Spanish, particularly the conquistadors, they made contact with native tribes uh, in in America, the Spanish made a very clear distinction uh, between the types of people they met and it was as simple as this they was are you a cannibal or are you not a cannibal and they recorded those they met according to those terms and those terms alone and then a lot of these early travel narratives where this information comes back to us now it was all published and printed for an english market um, there's one here by Sebastian Munster, a treatise for the new india in 1553 and that describes um the native South Americans accustomed to eating man's flesh. Now, the way it worked is interesting. Apparently, anyone who was captured under the age of 14 was castrated and then promptly fattened up to be eaten. But if you were over the age of 20, then you were killed immediately. Now, the the discussion of this is all pretty gruesome and gory, but there's a legal side to it too, and that's because... The motivation behind identifying people as cannibals or not was entirely legal because it was in the Spaniards' economic interest to identify as many cannibals as possible simply because if they were identified as cannibals, then they could legally be enslaved by the Spanish. So there's quite a lot of uh, motivation for the Spanish to identify people as cannibals. And one of the earliest descriptions of cannibalism was a Walter Raleigh. Um, He travelled to the New World in 1594, and his accounts are absolutely extraordinary. But not only does he describe cannibals, he also describes people who have their heads in their chests, I'm quoting here, and whose feet point backwards. So I'm not entirely sure how much of that we should believe, James. No, I'm I'm not sure either. Um, Another curious aspect about cannibalism and the Tudors is that eating people was a common aspect of Tudor medicine. So we can think about these cannibals in the New World and the way in which their savagery was reviled. But actually, Tudors routinely ingested human blood, bones and fat as part of everyday 
cures for anything from epilepsy to headaches. Now, take, for example, John Bannister, who was Elizabeth I's surgeon. Even he recommended what was known as corpse medicine, which was made of body parts. And a key ingredient used at the time was Egyptian mummies. The geographer Richard Hacklett described in his monumental The Principal Navigations, Voyages, Traffics and Discoveries of the English Nation Made by Sea or Overland to the Remote and Farthest Distant Quarters of the Earth in 1589, wrote how in Cairo the bodies of ancient men, not rotten but all whole, were unearthed daily from a pyramid, with one of his fellow travellers adding... These dead bodies are the mummy which the physicians and apothecaries do against our wills make us swallow. And it's very clear that these body parts found their way over to England. The writer and poet Thomas Nash remarked in 1594 that while for the general public mummy is somewhat obscure... It was very familiar to physicians, in other words, very familiar to doctors. And in 1586, the English succeeded in securing an illicit cargo of mummy meat weighing over 600 pounds. Yum. Mummy meat. I don't like that at all. OK, so we were inspired to do cannibalism by um, by what we found out about the Tudors. So now we're going to go on and uh, give you some other examples from other periods. I'm going to begin. James, I've got five minutes. Count me down. You have got five minutes. Off you go. OK, I'm going to tell you a wonderful story from the spring of 1884. And it's to do with four men who set sail on a tiny little yacht. And uh, they are going from Southampton out to Australia. And the yacht they are on is called the Mignonette. The impact of this voyage is, is extraordinary. It's, um, it, and it's survived through the ages just because of what happened. But first of all, let's think about who was on board. You've got Thomas Dudley. He's the captain. He's 31 years old. He's a, a proven yachtsman. He's got a great deal of experience and understanding of the customs of the sea. We've also got Ned Brooks and their mate, Edwin Stevens. Those guys were, were seasoned sailors. But then you have Richard Parker. He is 17. He is a, uh, it's his first proper voyage on the open sea. He comes from a seafaring family. He's got experience of sailing on inshore waters, but he's never gone um, far and beyond. And what happens is that in July, um, so this is a couple of months after they've set sail, um, on their way to, towards Cape Town, they're hit by a giant wave. The mignonette um, is 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 swamped. The crew have to get into the yacht's small little rowing boat, a little dinghy, and then off they drift through the huge waves of the South Atlantic. There's t- terrifying accounts of them coming across enormous sharks. <laughs> but that's not the worst of it. Um, they run out of food pretty quickly. Um, they manage to catch a turtle, but it's only one turtle. They eat that. Um, and they manage to uh, get some fresh water. They don't actually go on the dinghy with any water at all. They 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 gather what they can from the sky, drinking raindrops. 
So on the 17th of July, things reach ahead. So this is 12 days in, 12 days into their journey. And the young boy, Richard Parker, um, loses his mind. He's completely had enough. He's hallucinating. Uh, he, he maybe doesn't understand the impact of what he's about to do. And he drinks a whole load of seawater and collapses, becomes massively unwell, diarrhoea. He barely stirs. He's still alive, but he, he lies on the bottom of the dinghy. And that's pretty much all there is. Um, they leave it as long as they can. And then the other three men decide that the time has come. Um, there's a quote here. The boy is dying. You have a wife and five children. I have a wife and three children. Human flesh has been eaten before. And what they do is that Dudley and Stevens, in particular, they decide to kill Richard Parker. They grab his legs to stop him struggling. They kneel on his chest and thrust a penknife into into his throat. Um, they then use a case from a chronometer, a navigational device, to catch all of his blood. Uh, and then they they drink the blood. They they keep the flesh. They, they it keeps them alive for as long as they can. Um, and eventually, they're picked up on the 29th of July by a German vessel, which which finds them and then brings them in. They return to Falmouth. And they tell the story. But unfortunately, there becomes a massive legal problem when they realise that they've they've killed this person on purpose, but they've claimed as a defence necessity. And this leads to a huge flare up in the British legal system. And it's still um, it's still significant today as a case uh, in which for the first time it was it was proved that it was unacceptable to claim necessity to murder someone. Um, and eventually they were they they avoided being tried by a panel that had to be a, a panel of judges who actually came to this decision and then it was even turned over to the government uh, the problem was if these guys were found guilty they would be executed uh, and eventually they had the they were found guilty and their their sentences were were, were turned into um, a shorter period in prison and it's fascinating because one of the not only does it have a really important legal ramifications to it, uh, the sextant from the mignonette appeared in Australia about five or six years ago and actually was sold at auction. And inside the case was written in pencil. Um, we, Thomas Dudley, Edwin Stevens, Edmund Brooks and Richard Parker, the crew of the yacht mignonette, which founded on Saturday the 5th of July, have been in our little dinghy 15 days. We have neither food or water and are greatly reduced we suppose our latitude to be 25 degrees south, our longitude 28 degrees west. May the Lord have mercy upon us. Please forward this to Southampton. So that still survives. It was sold at auction in London. But the important point about this story is it had these huge legal ramifications, which meant that it became illegal to claim necessity as a defence for murder. And that is exactly why it's so important. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? That's my little uh, sound effects box, uh, my Christmas <laughs> sound effects box. And this is the the sign that Sam needs to stop talking because he's it is, but five I, minutes. I've got to finish my I've got to finish my sentence. Finish your sentence. To... Okay, so there was a previous shipwreck, absolutely extraordinary, um, where it was the law and the custom of the sea. You were allowed to draw lots to kill someone. Um, before this case, and there was a, a, a vessel that was found in 1836, and they were they used the severed hands and feet of the two people they had killed to wave for si assistance. <laughs> <laughs>
So there you have it. Cannibalism is actually all about 19th century shipwrecks, the custom of the sea and defence in common law. Brilliant. Brilliant. So there you go, James. That's your mini, mini uh, history of cannibalism. Are you ready to go? I love it. I'm ready to go. And um, my example of cannibalism comes from slightly earlier, from the 18th century. And it relates to a satirical piece penned by none other than Jonathan Swift, he of Gulliver Travels fame. And it's a text entitled, get this, A Modest Proposal for Preventing the Children of Poor People from Being a Burden to Their Parents or Country and for Making Them Beneficial to the Public. It's a text that's commonly known as a modest proposal. And it was something that I came across when actually I was quite young. I was a sort of, I was a teenager. And my teacher, my English teacher, uh, gave it to us to read, and it was deeply shocking at the time. Uh, it was It's an essay that Swift wrote and published anonymously in 1729, and it is a darkly polemical, humorous piece, very satirical. It's a sort of uber, uber satire that we've got here, because the argument that the essay makes is that a case is put forward to solve the economic problems in Ireland by selling their children as food to rich gentlemen and ladies. Now, of course, this is satire. And what Swift is doing here is he's mocking not only the uncaring and heartless attitudes towards the poor within society at the time, but also he is lampooning the British policy towards the Irish in general, which he sees as callous and unthinking. And I just want to read you a little bit of this, because what, what's quite shocking about it is that at the beginning, he starts by bemoaning the plight of starving beggars in Ireland. And then the solution that he comes up with is actually quite, quite radical. It is a melancholy object to those who walk through this great town or travel in the country when they see the streets, the roads and cabin doors crowded with beggars of the female sex, followed by three, four or six children, all in rags and importuning every passenger for an alms. These mothers, instead of being able to work for their honest livelihood, are forced to employ all their time in strolling to beg sustenance for their helpless infants, who, as they grow up, either turn thieves for want of work or leave their dear native country to fight for the pretender in Spain or sell themselves to the Barbados. I think it is agreed by all parties that this prodigious number of children in arms, or on the backs or at the heels of their mothers and frequently of their fathers, is in the present deplorable state of the kingdom a very great additional grievance. And therefore, whoever could find out a cheap, a fair, cheap and easy method of making these children sound and useful members of the Commonwealth would deserve so well of the public as to have his statue set up for a preserver of the nation. And now he moves to his proposal. I shall now, therefore, humbly propose my own thoughts, which I hope will not be liable to the least objection. I have been assured by a very knowing American of my acquaintance in London that a young, healthy child, well-nursed, is at a year old a most delicious, nourishing and wholesome food, whether stewed, roasted, baked or boiled, and I make no doubt that it will equally serve in a fricassee or a ragout. 
I do therefore humbly offer it to public consideration that of the 120,000 children already computed, 20,000 may be reserved for breed, whereof only one-fourth part be males, which is more than we allow to sheep, black cattle, or swine. And my reason is that these children are seldom the fruits of marriage, a circumstance much regarded by our savages. Therefore, one male will be sufficient to serve four females. And so it goes on. I have reckoned upon a medium that a child just born will weigh twelve pounds, and in a solar year, if tolerably nursed, increaseth to twenty-eight pounds. Infants' flesh will be in season throughout the year, but more plentiful in March, and a little before and after, for we are told by a grave author, an eminent French physician, that fish being a prolific diet, there are more children born in Roman Catholic countries about nine months after Lent, and the markets will be more glutted than usual, because the number of popish infants is at least three to one in this kingdom, and therefore it will have one other collateral advantage by lessening the number of papists among us. Did you hear my broadside of HMS Victory? I didn't, no. <laughs> it was amazing. That's it. Your Excellent. five minutes is up. <laughs> Excellent, Sam. Brilliant. So there you go. Cannibalism is actually all about Jonathan Swift, 18th century satire, and the suggestion that eating babies would cure the economic problems in Ireland. There we go. How about that? And I think we've done it. A little bit more than 15 minutes, but... I think you'll agree, timely and good. Very timely and good. Um, I hope you enjoyed that, guys. Um, I very much enjoyed it. We're going to come back with some more micro-histories. That'll be absolutely fantastic. Do please uh, check us out online. Follow me on Twitter at Dr Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. Uh, do please check out everything online on historiesoftheunexpected.com. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.